When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone who tried to cross over was being killed. And my friend who was right in front of me, and she was about to cross, she got hit by a sniper. Other people in the platoon, they were all started to fall. The guy who recruited me, who was still there, and another person's head exploded next to me. And I was still there, right behind all of that. That's the voice of Naomi de Souza, who at the age of 15 joined the Tamil Tigers, a liberation front to some and a terrorist organisation to others. This is Violent Times. Violence is often perpetrated by rebels, ethnic groups or governments to achieve political goals. The willingness to die for change, or what you believe in, is particularly seductive to young political agitators who are desperate to make a difference. And that's why, at the age of 15, Naomi decides to fight for her identity. There was no other option for me and I felt that I needed to do something before I died. I didn't want to be just another victim, just another number, and I thought I'll do something. And that's why I wanted to join the Tigers. The Tamil and Sinhalese races are the two predominant Sri Lankan demographics, whose cultural divide clashed in a tense struggle and eventually a bloody war. But the Sri Lanka that Naromi was raised in was a very different place. The Sri Lanka that I knew as a child was quite beautiful, actually. And it's what you'd imagine um, someone who would live in a tropical island would have the kind of lifestyle. I was born in the south in Sri Lanka, in Kandy, with a hill country. And it was just a vibrant community with Tamils, Sinhalese, Burgers, who are the British descendants. So we've had a great community. I've had a very ordinary childhood. Throughout her childhood, Naomi craved a sense of adventure, and it was the State Library in Kandy that offered her a means of wonder and escape. There were two types of books that I really loved. One was Tintin, because of the adventure. He was so adventurous. He went to so many countries and did so many things that I was absolutely fascinated by. I even have a dog now, um, which is the snowy version of the same dog, because I just absolutely loved Tintin. Until I went to the north, in Jaffna, where my father's ancestors are from. Again, it started off fine, it was pretty normal. Then the war started, things completely changed. It all started in 1977, when the Tamil United Liberation Front were formed as a political party, driven to achieve independence through the ballot box. The Front won every Tamil area seat, but the Sinhalese United National Party banned them from taking any of those seats in Parliament. Riots eventually broke out, and the violence against Tamil plantation workers led to the forced evacuation of 75,000 Tamils to the northern provinces. What started as an effort to gain a separate Tamil state turned into random acts of terrorism. In an effort to destroy manuscripts and records of Tamil heritage, 
Sinhalese vandals burnt down the library in Jaffna, the same library Naomi would spend the majority of her youth in, reading Tintin adventure stories. I was too young. I was only, you know, 10, 11. And then when I was about 11 years old, the state library was burned down. This was done by the government forces and they burnt the library because it was used by predominant Tamils. So it was used by them. And it's where I spent my time. So I remember it was the time before internet, before even television in most parts of Sri Lanka. The library was our way to the world. And I loved reading and I spent a lot of time there only to find when the library just burned down, I was quite shocked and thought, why would someone burn down a library? That is what actually inducted me into the whole idea of the ethnic conflict that was going on in Sri Lanka, and I became more and more aware of it. Around the same time, a 19-year-old Marxist named Valupalai Prabhakaran formed the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, or the Tamil Tigers. Prabhakaran was a belligerent leader who exploited the ruthless nature of violence in his pursuit of a separate Tamil state. Every day we were experiencing bombing and shelling, so, uh, so you couldn't avoid it. And then as time went on, we were living in the bunkers, still hoping there would be school, and our lives became completely disrupted. There was no other option for me and I felt that I needed to do something before I died. I didn't want to be just another victim, just another number, and I thought I'll do something. And that's why I wanted to join the Tigers. Last year, the European Union took the Tamil Tigers off their terrorist list and evoked that old phrase, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. For 25 years, the Tamil minority desperately fought for an independent Tamil state using guerrilla tactics that shocked the world. Whatever way you choose to read history, the brutality of the Sri Lankan civil war is undisputed. Living in the jungle is not a pleasant thing, and it is not what I envisaged. You know, I had here idealized, oh, a, what, you know, a militant fighting, living in the jungle and fighting the war, and I used to write poetry about it. But it, it was not poetic at all. And I also couldn't get over the whole death, you know, all of the, the violence that I had just witnessed, people's head exploding and my friend dying. And I think it gradually came to me that they were definitely gone. I sort of um, couldn't reconcile that idea that I didn't say goodbye to her and I wasn't prepared for her to just die before me. Um, and I thought, how could people exist one minute and just be gone like that? You know, I, 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 this was a lesson that I suddenly had to learn. And, um, you know, and I just did not want to be there. Naomi left the safety of her middle-class upbringing to join the Tamil Tigers and took up arms against the Sri Lankan government. She thought she was giving her life meaning and romantically fighting for her beliefs but this war would challenge her bookworm understanding of what it meant to partake in a revolution. In Sri Lanka, there were mass murders being publicly carried out on both sides, but Prabhakaran was always one step ahead, devising a method of guerrilla warfare that would send shockwaves of panic and horror throughout the major cities, largely due to the determination of his desperate recruits. Because the Tamil Tigers were a militant organisation, they didn't have like a recruiting process, especially for girls at that time, because they were not taking in girls. And I was trying to find out ways to get in, but they just kept saying no. 
So all it was you trying to find contacts. A lot of the Tamil Tigers are um, young boys in the community who had gone and joined them and gotten trained either in India or Lebanon and had come back and set up camps. And so if they captured an area, they would set up a camp. Uh, by camp, I mean they'll take over someone's house. They'll um, kick the people who live there. It's a, it's a big enough house. They'll just take over the house. So that was a camp. So you could go and knock on the gate and beg them to take you. And so um, that's what I eventually ended up doing. So I managed to get a contact through school because Tigers were coming into schools and speaking up, uh, speaking to students there as well. But they wanted students to join their student wing. But I wasn't interested in the student wing. I wanted to be in the militant wing. So I tried to get them to take me in. And so that's what I did. We went to one of the offices and pretty much beg them to take us in. The Tamil Tigers' female fighting force developed a fierce reputation for their focus and determination. The girls would wear their hair in plaits and rock tattered military fatigues. They also wore a cyanide capsule necklace so that they could quickly commit suicide in case they were captured by the government. They were devoted to the ideals of the Tamil struggle while remaining blind to the logistics of war. So, describe training. What was the first day of training like? First day of training was pretty crude. I mean, training, the whole training base was crude. So, it was on a um, coconut plantation. They took about 100 girls who we were all ready to get trained, and we were dropped off in little minibuses. And the girls who had come back from India who had been trained previously, they were going to be our trainers. We were allocated in groups, and then we were told, build your own hut. So I didn't know how to build a hut. A lot of the other girls um, had skills because they've lived in villages. Um, you know, they knew exactly what to do. So they, they built, and I helped pretty much. I didn't know what to do. And then we built our own training base. It was really crude from, you know, tree stumps and ropes. The whole commando base, as we called it, was built from ground by us. We dug a toilet pit dug a well all it lasted for six weeks but wasn't really what you'd call a military training and we were given smg rifles to fire so that was our target practice and that was only once a week so it wasn't a lot of it and we were given some lectures on camouflage and war tactics but to be honest none of that came in handy when i was actually trusted in the front line Most of the girls were resigned to fight to the death in order to defend what they claim was their rightful homeland. Their all-female combat units fought on the front line of the offensive in the north of the country, with little to no experience in tactical warfare or violent combat. They were given assault rifles, but they were armed with hope. Did they train you in combat, like violence, or was it only rifles? All we were trained was for target practice and exercises run around the ground, do some basic training, physical training. So there was no, no training for any particular type of violence. But having said that, it was just during that time the Tamil Tigers had their first suicide bomber. And he was called Captain Miller, and he was the first guy who got, tra- you know, became a um, suicide bomber. So Prabhakar and the leader often came to visit us in the camp because we were the first group of girls. And also he had just arrived in Sri Lanka because he was exiled in India all that time. So he visited us quite regularly and he talked about suicide bombers as the future and he then asked how many of you would, of us would volunteer to become suicide bombers. Pretty much everyone was 
you know, agreement. They were all putting up their hands and, you know, screaming out, me, pick me, pick me. Within the Tamil Tigers were an elite squad of suicide mission volunteers, referred to as the Black Tigers. The Black Tigers were responsible for the most ruthless and brazen attacks. Whenever there was a call for volunteers, more than 50 soldiers applied. The numbers eventually became so staggering that Prabhakaran was forced to create a martyr's lottery. Did you have any encounters with the Black Tigers? At that time, they were only men, and um, a lot of them were Prabhakaran's bodyguards as well. Um, so, yeah, they did um, talk to us and said, yeah, it's an honour. It's a total honour to be um, chosen to be a Black Tiger. And um, that's what the girls wanted too as well. But, um, yeah, one of the girls that I knew who trained with me, she was the suicide bomber to kill Rajiv Gandhi, the Indian Prime Minister. I knew her as a noja. And, um, again, I didn't know anything about this until, you know, 2009 when I actually started to read about the Tamil Tigers or what they've done after I left them. So, um, yeah, so we did speak to Tamil Tigers and we knew them. The Black Tigers were responsible for executing a president, the head of the Sri Lankan Air Force, a minister of national security, an opposition leader, and the former Prime Minister of India, Rajiv Gandhi, as well as launching a brutal attack on the international airport in 2001, where the Black Tigers blew up half of the national airline's small fleet of jets. And I was just sitting there going, oh my God, I'm too scared. But also I'm Catholic. I'm thinking, oh, as Catholic, I can't commit suicide because then I'll go to hell. You know, that, that was the only thought that came to me. Yeah, so that was one of those things because he said it was the most effective um, tool against the enemy where one person's life could claim so many others and have maximum impact. So if you're just one person in a frontline combat, you might kill somebody or not. But this way, you could kill so many. So it's the best thing that you could do. So a lot of them wanted to join and he said, no, no, I'm going to watch you, how you train and how you're going to develop as an individual within the group and then I will handpick you. So it sort of also became an elite group that if you were picked to be a suicide bomber or the Black Tigers as they were called. For almost 30 years, Prabhakaran's war for an independent homeland shifted from a struggle for liberation to outright terrorism. To his detractors, he was a ruthless terrorist who pioneered the use of suicide bomb. But to the thousands of fighters who followed him to their deaths, and to the millions of Tamils around the world who donated to his cause, the 54-year-old was somewhat of a demigod. Do you remember the first time you met the leader or you saw the leader? Yes, I saw him first time at the interview before we went into training. Um, he interviewed each one of us. So he was sitting in a room and we all queued up outside and we were told, you know, you'll get two minutes in, don't say much, just listen and then walk out. When my turn came, I went in and there was no electricity at that time. So there was a little lamp and he was larger than life and suddenly he's in front of you and you were literally tongue tied. He was quite encouraging. You know, we went to private Catholic girls' schools. So he said, in your area, we find it hard to recruit. So this is good. Keep up. And so he just encouraged. But at the same time, while I was sitting there, I was getting bitten by um, bed bugs on the seat. There are the two things that I remember now when I think back. Most of the young Tamils said that it was a peer who convinced them to join. All of them went through some kind of indoctrination that was designed to create hatred of the enemy. There was literature, rebel radio and television stations that broadcast justifications for volunteering. 
Most of the propaganda was aimed at children and adolescents. Model automatic rifles were attached on seesaws in children's playgrounds. The dead were glorified as martyrs in monuments, and school bands paraded at funerals that honored dead comrades. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All of that training and that motivation, it doesn't necessarily expose you to the reality of combat and war. What was that like the first day? I was very idealistic. And I had romanticized this whole idea of being a militant, you know, fighting against oppression, against government forces who were so unreasonable. I was still in that same phase, you know, thinking I'm just getting prepared, I'm going to go into this and fight. And it did not prepare me at all for reality. And the first day of combat was quite shocking because I did not expect what happened, because we were put in an area with lots of other boys and girls groups and we were standing there facing, they said, oh, the enemy is coming this way, you, you just cover that area, they, they come start shooting. So while we are waiting for hours and you could hear gunshot at distance and, and then the troops advancing and the next thing you know, um, they told us, you know, go sit down and have lunch. So we went and had some lunch on borders and then as we were walking back, suddenly we saw soldiers, we suddenly came face to face with them and all they said was surrender. They screamed at us saying surrender. And before I thought, oh, we're going to shoot at them, I turned around and everybody had turned around and ran. They all ran. So I started running as well. I thought, oh, well, I might as well run. And it was a bit of a shock for me because I thought the Tigers always said they were, um, you know, a brave force that never showed their backs onto the enemy. And here we were. First, My first experience was running away from the enemy. Naromi quickly realized that the ideals and the propaganda she had fallen in love with were nothing more than a dream. They were outnumbered and outgunned. Do you remember the first time you engaged in combat? After that happened, we did come across soldiers and we were told to just fire. But I couldn't see anything. They said, just keep shooting in that general direction. Looks like there are some soldiers, so you keep firing. So I did fire. And then the guy next to me said, you don't fire one shot at a time. You just do two or three at a time. I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest, because the training did not prepare us for that. So it was a bit, well, very disorganized. So for how long were you engaged in warfare? As tigers lost control of the territory and the army gained, we were running. We, we couldn't. We had nowhere to sleep, so we would break into people's houses. And it came to a point we started sleeping in banana plantations and ate other fruit from other people. Conditions became very primitive, and we had lost all our belongings, and we ended up with nothing. So there was no footwear because we lost all our shoes. We had just the clothes we wore, and we were with in those clothes for about a year. So the conditions were so primitive and then we had to then exile into the jungles of Sri Lanka. Naromi spent the year essentially on the run and hiding in the jungles of Sri Lanka. They would spend weeks in complete silence with hardly any food or sense of direction. The whole warfare happened in Jaffna and uh, the suburbs of of Jaffna which is the north part of Sri Lanka and then um, 
came a point we had no territory at all and the decision was made that we get on a boat and travel to the north east area of Sri Lanka and then we ended up in the jungles. The Tamil Tigers were retreating to their strongholds in Jaffna and deep into the jungle. Prabhakaran's dictatorship and ruthless murder of perceived rivals damaged the support he had cultivated from his loyal subordinates, which in turn ruined the Tamil Tigers' conviction in the fight against the Sri Lankan army. The soldiers were losing their will to fight and realising that their cause was falling apart. Do you miss anything about that time? I miss those young people who had given their lives and I think the fact that I'm here talking about them it itself is uh, the reason why I'm still alive, I guess, because, you know, because they're forgotten, you know. One of those that lost their life was your best friend. Yes, um, yes, it is. Because she's the one who came with me, you know, the two of us just went and one of the things that I realised why I stayed as long as I did, despite the fact that I didn't agree with a lot of the things that went on, because she was there. She was always there. So you're having your best friend. You can always talk things through. And she understood you because you've come from a same area, your same background. You were friends before this. And there were other girls that I made friends with as well. And I think because of her, I stayed as long as I did. We had survived so many ambushes because from December 1, 1987, we started to encounter lots of ambushes because that's when we were losing territory. There were weeks where we didn't actually speak much at all because we couldn't speak because the soldiers were so close to us. We didn't want them to hear us. There was this time when we had this big roundup. There was three layers of soldiers, we were told later, and there was 22 of us. There was no chance. We didn't know that. We had been sleeping in a little mud hut and then in the morning suddenly we were surrounded. So we had to try to break through that and try to escape and because there was no other way out and that's the day a lot of them died and everyone who tried to cross over was being killed and my friend who was right in front of me and she was about to cross she got hit by a sniper. It didn't feel real. I saw her fall. Other people in the platoon, they were all starting to fall. The guy who recruited me, who was still there, he was like a father figure to me. And another person's head exploded next to me. And I was still there, right behind all of that. I think I didn't know what to do. And suddenly I felt someone grab me from behind. And that was one of our, one of the other uh, boys in the group. He dragged me to safety. At this point in the interview, Naromi emotionally broke down. She was distant. And although we were face to face, her thoughts were rummaging around that jungle in Sri Lanka. I was completely numb. It felt like I've seen something, but I, it wasn't real. And I guess I hadn't processed it. And, it, you know, it's such a cliche, but that is true. You know, you felt like you were protected by the smoke screen. And it's only as the day progressed, I'm just sitting there, sitting there thinking, wonder where the others are, wonder where the others are. And then the soldiers kept walking by and the command, he said, keep your cyanide capsules in your mouth shoot and then bite into it. I could feel the capsule grating between my teeth every time the soldiers walked by. We were about to do it and they didn't see us. They kept walking by. We could see their boots, but we just stayed still and they walked past. And it happened twice that day. A few months prior to Naromi's ambush, 12 Tamil Tigers were taken into custody by the Sri Lankan Navy. When the Navy attempted to take them to Colombo for interrogation, all 12 commit suicide 
by swallowing the cyanide capsules that were attached to their necklaces. And that's when I thought, maybe I'm not going to die in this war. Because for a long time I thought, I'll be dead, I'll do something and then I'll be dead anyway, so, you know, it'll be fine. But that time I thought, maybe I won't die, Uh, maybe I'm going to live a while and see what's going to happen. And that kind of then started to change because I realised suddenly I've lost the will to fight. I lost the will to want um, the Tamil um, Ilam that we were after, you know, the separate um, state that Tamil people were after because I just started thinking if people were going to die like this, what would be the point of me achieving something at the end when all the people we loved are dead? Um, who are we doing this for, you know? So I suddenly felt there was just really no purpose to this and I started to decide I need to leave. I needed to leave and I would, I think at that stage all I could think was, think was I needed to get out of this situation because this is not where I want to be. I did ask a couple of times to leave and they said, no, you can't, this is not the right time. The soldiers are in your house, you, your, you know, your parents, your mum and your sister being taken away by the soldiers and I'm thinking what? because of me, I didn't think, I never even thought of things like that would happen, you know, I didn't think of them. I never thought they would be suffering the consequences of my actions. So that even made me feel worse and then I had to then get on the boat to go down to the jungles. So I felt like I had no choice. The threat of violence is sometimes necessary to maintain order or peace. But when you inverse that idea and commit violence to achieve an aim with brute force, the outcome is often messy and short-lived. Living in the jungle is not a pleasant thing and it is not what I envisaged. You know, I had here idealised living in the jungle and fighting the war and I used to write poetry about it, but it, it was not poetic at all. And I also couldn't get over all of the, the violence that I had just witnessed, people's head exploding and my friend dying. And I think it gradually came to me that they were definitely gone. I sort of couldn't reconcile that idea that I didn't say goodbye to her and I wasn't prepared for her to just die before me. And I thought, how could people exist one minute and just be gone like that? This was a lesson that I suddenly had to learn. Finally, there was a time where we had to leave the jungle base and go into a village and I thought, this is my time to leave. And then they said, yes, you could go. Because I think it was becoming difficult for the tigers to maintain the numbers because how are we going to sustain this group? It would be better if everyone went into civilization and mingled with the population and then when we had to regroup we could call all these people back in. So that was, I think, their plan. So I was allowed to go and I think the decision to leave was actually braver than the decision to join. At least when I was joining in I knew I had no other option, I wanted to do something before I died. It wasn't hard but when I was leaving I didn't know where I was going to go. That's something that I look back and think I had a lot of blind optimism that things would work out. Nowadays, most terrorist organisations exploit the globalised world by relying on offshore funding and resources. These wars are incredibly difficult to combat and the Sri Lankan civil war is a rare exception. After 25 years of bloodshed, it's the only country where the government achieved lasting peace against the guerrilla insurgency. The so-called victory stands in stark contrast to American wars in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. Naromi was eventually allowed to reunite with her family. After suffering the trauma of war and witnessing the brutal deaths of her friends, she realised that life was more important than ideology.
when I saw my mother, she embraced me and she sort of was just in sobbing. She was just inconsolable. She was hugging me and crying. And I just looked back and I realized I was just standing still. I had no expression, no emotion whatsoever. I think I have become so numb over time. All I said to her was, oh, so you came. I thought you would never come for me. And she said to me, how could you think that? You were my daughter. You know, I would never abandon you. And I went, oh, okay. And that was it. I had become really quiet and introspective because in that time after my friend died, I think I pretty much stopped speaking, really. And I didn't say anything to her. and She didn't ask me anything. I think she probably didn't want to know things, so she didn't ask me. She just thought, from now on, we're just going to move forward. She bought some clothes I had to change into, and we went to a relative's house there and changed, and then um, I got on the train to Colombo and left the country after that. When the war came to an end, 12,000 Tamil Tigers, 600 of whom were child soldiers, surrendered to the Sri Lankan military. The government took action to rehabilitate the surrendered cadres under a national action plan for the reintegration of ex-combatants, while allegations of torture, rape and murder were reported by international human rights bodies. It took me, I think, nearly, I don't know, 20, 30 years. It was 2009 when I went back and had to translate the book into English because I had written it in Tamil uh, when I was in boarding school, that all the emotions came out. That's why I think... After so long, I still talk about it and I still feel emotional because until about 2011, until then, I didn't really talk about it. In a modern democracy, the threat of violence is imposed to maintain order and the idea that we can overthrow a government with violence is nothing more than a short-lived dream. Political violence is a dangerous mirage and whenever the safety of the majority is jeopardised, state-sanctioned violence is used to manage the uprising in accords with international checks and balances. The nuances of what takes place on the ground is often hazy, but the idea that we can actually achieve progress through violent force seems historically redundant these days. After talking to Naromi, the war taught her one dark and tragic lesson, that violence is an adventure best suited to fiction. This episode of Violent Times was hosted by me, Mahmoud Fazal, produced by Callum Vandermortel, edited by Dom Duca and Jeffrey O'Connor, mixed and mastered by Jeffrey O'Connor. Our series producer is Katie Roberts, and post-production coordinator is Pia Caridi. On the next episode of Violent Times, I'll be talking to Vicky Roach. She's an Indigenous activist who's racked up over 125 convictions and understands the role of violence in the soaring incarceration rate of First Nations people. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.